Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. Independently developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. Joe Serban. I'm a professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and chair of the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you for taking time away from your busy schedule to join us for this neuroscience CME live and on-demand activity entitled, Remain Calm, Stay Safe, Be Prepared, Developing and Implementing a Seizure Action Plan. This neuroscience CME activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians across the globe. Today's program is being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. Be sure to share this link with colleagues or team members who were not able to join us today, and I encourage you to visit the website for additional educational activities. I also encourage everyone to join us in on our live Twitter conversation at hashtag SeizureActionPlan. We'll be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. And don't forget to stay with us for our after the show segment when you, are, uh, when you can call and email us with your most challenging cases or questions. Our goal is to ultimately help you improve the lives of your patients. So please have your pen in hand, submit your questions, type away any questions, and give us any feedback too. And with that, welcome to today's program. We may not be having as much fun as the folks who are celebrating Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland today, but I'm excited about our programs here and I'm looking forward to discussing real-world clinical management issues that will help you recognize seizures and seizure clusters, help you understand treatment options, and ultimately develop a seizure action plan using shared decision making. With me today are esteemed colleagues and friends. Ms. Patricia Dean and Dr. Cheryl Hout, who uh, we welcome Pat and Cheryl to the show today. It's Thank great to have you, you here. Thank great you to be here. Ms. Dean is immediate past president of the Epilepsy Foundation of Florida, and she's clinical coordinator of the Comprehensive Epilepsy, Epilepsy Center at the, at the Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, Florida. So, Pat, always a pleasure. Me too, Joe. Dr. Hout is director of the Adult Epilepsy Program and professor of clinical neurology at Montefiore Medical Center at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Cheryl, great to have you here. Great to be here, Joe. Thank you. Well, let me start by reviewing our three learning objectives for our program today. First, we'll review the recognition and diagnosis of seizures and seizure clusters 
and the available treatment as well as emerging therapies for rescue therapy for seizure clusters. We'll shift focus and then we'll incorporate what we've reviewed about treatment into our discussion of seizure action plans and then what goes into developing that plan. Lastly, we'll discuss how to develop a seizure action plan in a collaborative manner with our patients using the theory of shared decision making. One thing I'm really excited about is the way we've integrated the voice of the patient throughout this activity. The vast majority of patients, more than 90% of them, use the internet to learn about their disease. So we went directly to the source. CME Outfitters and I developed a survey that we sent to patient leaders who either have epilepsy themselves or are the caregiver for a child or adult who has epilepsy. These folks are very active on various social media and discussion forums related to epilepsy itself. Their feedback, which represents a community of more than 160,000 patients with epilepsy, provided guidance as we developed the content of this program. Well, let's kind of start and kind of get us into the mode. And one thing that is the foundation is getting an accurate diagnosis. It's critical in the optimal management of epilepsy. Let's take a first look at what our respondents had to say on this topic. Depending on the area that you live in, most areas that are metropolitan that have neurologists available to them can get patient care a lot faster. And so you can typically have an accurate diagnosis in three to six months. But for those that live in rural areas, sometimes it can be one to two years before they really get a good accurate diagnosis. And it can sometimes take two or more doctors to get to that point. You know, uh, when you listen to that, what we're hearing is lots of doctors, lots of time before they get to a diagnosis. Cheryl, give me a sense of at least what, what you think is what you heard from the patient audio there. You know, this is the reality that they live with and we need to hear about it. Us in the, in the healthcare field need to recognize how urgent making the diagnosis is and uh, helping the patient get educated and reach the point of treatment. Pat, anything yeah, to Yeah, I, I mean, it really is terrible to think that people have to suffer for months to years before getting the care that they actually need. It's so important and, and the first step that we're going to try to take is at least for everyone, let's define what we're talking about. So I'd like to start by confirming the definition of epilepsy and how that has changed. Cheryl, I'm going to turn to you and I want you to walk us through the definition of epilepsy. So we're, we're in an exciting time in epilepsy, both uh, from treatment, research, advocacy, and leadership. There, there are tremendous strides. And even at the level of defining epilepsy itself, there's a lot of progress. And so the traditional approach has been that a patient is diagnosed with epilepsy when they've had two or more unprovoked seizures. But as, as recently as last year, uh, there have been some revisions to this diagnosis. And I think these revisions are really important for the clinical care of patients. We now recognize that you may be able to identify a patient who is going to go on to have epilepsy even after their first seizure. Uh, when you can establish through other testing and other risk factors that their seizure recurrence risk is quite high. And for that patient, 
making the diagnosis of epilepsy early, potentially after the first seizure, can actually have very important clinical implications. And that's where the new definition is taking us. You know, obviously, uh, obviously we would like the three months in one physician to be the norm. To do that, we need to improve our recognition and diagnostic rates. Cheryl, take us through how seizures are classified. So we heard a little clip about patients right. and, and how they feel about what type of seizure they have. Honestly, it's, it's a confusing area for the clinicians and the caregivers and obviously the patients as well. Uh, the classification continues to evolve. Really, we're seeing new changes on an ongoing basis generated from the International League Against Epilepsy, who, who've also generated the new definition of epilepsy. And what I'd say is at this point, it may be the easiest to consider that seizures and epilepsies fall into overall two different categories, those which are focal mm -hmm. versus those which are generalized. And in the focal category, the seizures presumably start in one area, one general area of the brain. They may spread locally or, or widely. Um, whereas in the category of generalized epilepsy and epilepsies, these seizures are presumed to begin simultaneously in both hemispheres. And this is an oversimplification, but within these groups there are numerous seizure types with some overlap. And uh, why it's important both for the patients and for the uh, healthcare providers is it can help guide both prognosis and also appropriate treatment. For just as an example, the agents that we have that work through the sodium channel mm -hmm. tend to be quite effective in the focal epilepsy category right. and may actually exacerbate some of the generalized seizure types. So overall, this is an important area of clarity for both doctors, healthcare providers, and patients. Yeah, I, I can't underscore that more. It's such a vital piece to know what large type you have but at the end, some of times the language we use is what trips us up, and, and at true. least you present the simplest part of that, uh, mech, uh, of that scheme at this time. I could, we could talk all we want, but sometimes videos and pictures give us the best. So towards improved recognition, let's take a look at some actual patient videos and see how we would diagnose these patients. What are the clinical features that help us with the diagnosis? So we're going to play the, the first one, and I'm going to uh, ask, uh, I believe it's Cheryl in this case, to basically uh, walk us through this particular video example. So what we're seeing on the video is a patient who is having some very subtle movements you see some lip smacking, some blinking of her eyes. We would presume that there's a, an alteration of consciousness or awareness, but without someone speaking to her, we can't be certain of that. Uh, and in fact, overall, you see that it's a very subtle presentation. This is very, very typical of a focal seizure, very likely coming from the temporal lobe. But you can understand why this may be missed. Yes. And we often will see a patient who's been having these type of what, what is now called focal discognitive or focal seizures with, with an, an alteration of awareness. 
and they've been having these seizures for some time before coming to medical attention. Sure. And they may only present if, if one of the seizures spreads and becomes a convulsion. You could easily see how that, in that particular video, if they're by themselves, anything could happen, and it brings up just that whole concern of safety. Uh, Pat, we're gonna show you the second video, and I'll ask you to comment on it after we've played it, because I think it speaks for itself to some direction. time I watch uh, that video I think I still get my stomach fall. Pat so can you upsetting. walk us through on that one? Well you, you, it was hard to see what he was doing in the beginning but he was looking down but you could see he had some kind of alteration or disturbance in his consciousness because all of a sudden he fell and after he fell his limbs stiffened and the, the point, the real point of that is how dangerous seizures are and why it's important to diagnose and treat quickly because you can get hurt. Patients get hurt. I mean, even the woman we saw ahead of time, right. you know, you would say, well, what's a big deal if you kind of blank out for a few seconds? But the truth is we never really know how a seizure is going to progress. So it's very important to diagnose quickly and to treat effectively. There could be injuries even from the smaller seizure that we saw. People burn themselves, they may fall down the stairs, etc. It's Those videos are powerful reminders of just, again, the safety risks and all that can potentially occur uh, from the subtle to, to the more, most overt example uh, and ones that we need to kind of etch in our memory as we kind of move forward. Well, we've discussed the importance of early recognition getting the right diagnosis. We've shown you some actual videos and talked about a little clinical features that's important in diagnosis. But let's talk about a slightly different aspect of this. One of the big movements in medicine now are quality and quality measures and how you document it. Cheryl, can you tell us a little about updated quality and measures that are available for individuals with epilepsy that have arisen out of the American Academy of Neurology and CMS, and, and how does that work and what are they? So there's, as you say, this is a, an area of quite a big interest and uh, sometimes it feels frustrating, oh, there's something else for us to worry about in our documentation, but actually I think operationalizing this uh, is so important and really ultimately very helpful. Uh, the AAN uh, in 2014 issued an updated quality measurement set that goes through what we should be focusing on and documenting for every encounter of a patient uh, with epilepsy. Some of these should be, uh, with each encounter, some only, mo only monthly or yearly. But these are really important reminders. It's not just about seizure counting. It's about reviewing side effects with the of the medications regularly with the patients. Because I can write any prescription I want, but if the patient is having unacceptable side effects, they won't take it. And if I haven't inquired about that, I may not know that this tension exists between the treatment and the tolerability. Uh, for the purpose of today, one of the most important measures in this, uh, this quality measure set is this personalized epilepsy safety issue that this needs to be reviewed at least yearly with the patients 
probably as as you may be telling us uh, yes more, I think more. we need to review it much more frequently right. than yearly right. and we'll be talking about that in just a few moments uh, because uh, you're absolutely right well we know that patients we know patients that are more educated about their illness are often more engaged and more adherent to treatment plans yet according to our patient survey there's a wide range anywhere from 30 to 95 percent of informed patients out there. That's a pretty wide range. You can see some of the responses that are listed on the slide. Uh, and I think you could read it for yourselves, but you get, I think, the larger points that are well encapsulated from basically one of the audio clips from uh, one of the patients that we have for you all to listen to. I would say approximately 60 percent of our community can identify their seizures correctly. Some may not use the correct terms, but they can identify whether they are a generalized or a focal seizure. You know, it, it, it's, it always strikes me uh, when it comes to listening to this how, how much more work we have to do when it comes to this issue. Uh, Pat and Cheryl, do you think talking with patients about their seizure type matters, and how do you talk with your patients? I'll start out with Pat first. Well, it, it matters. I mean, and it matters really to them. I mean, it's like you said, the more, the more people know about their disease, the more engaged they will be mm -hmm. in the treatment. And so it, it's just, it's very important that we give the patients all the information that we can to help them manage their disease. You know, I want to comment that the patients are searching for education. If we're not giving it to them, they're going to find sources of it. And it's really imperative for us to direct them to the best places for online education and try to avoid some sites that have a lot of misinformation, things that can actually uh, worsen the patient's understanding of epilepsy rather than enhance it. It's true. The web and the internet can be a dangerous place, but it could also be our, our greatest source of right. benefit here. Right. Well, we've reviewed the importance of recognizing, diagnosing, and don't forget documenting seizures. We can move on to what constitutes a seizure cluster, which we're going to spend a bit of time talking about now. Cheryl, I understand there is some confusion among clinicians regarding what we mean when we say seizure clusters. Can you kind of review for us the landscape of the language surrounding seizure clusters and what's being done to standardize both the language and the definition? This is a great point. I think both healthcare providers and patients and caregivers all recognize this entity. And it's an entity of repeated seizures over a period of time, typically different from what the patient may experience otherwise. But what remains unclear is what is that period of time? How many seizures are we talking about? How do we know when this type of cluster is an emergency and requires treatment or isn't? And to make matters worse, over the years, the terminology has not been uniform. So we've got the term we've already been using here, seizure cluster. It's been called acute repetitive seizures, and some of the, important, the most important clinical trials have used that terminology. We've heard seizure flurries, serial seizures, crescendo seizures. So what, how are we to sort this out and proceed with designing 
you know, clinical trials and treatment plans. And even within the clinical studies, you see that the number of seizures or the time frame that we're talking about varies. So you may be talking about a seizure cluster within six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. It could even be over a few days. And I'll use the example of certain women have what we call catamenial epilepsy, which are that their seizures uh, are triggered by specific times of the menstrual cycle, often periovulatory or, or premenstrual. And they may experience a cluster of seizures over a two or three day period. So there's, there is a definite need for more clarity on this, on this topic. But ultimately, I think when the caregivers and patients sit together with the doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, and discuss what is the nature of a cluster that creates uh, an emergency for the patient? What is the number of seizures occurring that, that needs to be treated? That is how individually these clusters can be defined. It's such an important point. And, and now that we've kind of defined it, and we know there's almost five terms, but we're going to stick to one, let's talk about numbers, because you mentioned that. Uh, what's the data regarding prevalence of seizure cl uh, clusters? Cheryl, if you can kind of walk us from that direction. Again, an area where there's a lot of research, and some of the answers are, are not satisfactory enough. Uh, what we know is that in, certainly in certain populations, seizure clusters are quite prevalent. Tends to be in the uh, more severe epilepsies, often the childhood forms of epilepsy, where precipitants such as an intercurrent illness or mismedication can uh, bring on a dramatic seizure cluster. Overall, if you look at studies, and, and uh, most of them have been outpatient studies, we also do some inpatient studies of clustering. But uh, the prevalence within these studies tends to range anywhere from in the 20s up to the 60s uh, percent of, of the populations. That's probably an overestimate looking at m more of the, the more severe epilepsy groups. And if you take just an overall population estimate, uh, it may be it's been reported as low as 3 percent. So in some sense, the numbers are, are all over the place. Right. And what we do know is that many patients don't typically experience clusters, but will have them under certain provocative conditions. And for those patients especially, it's very important to have something to put into action, uh, which we'll be talking about. You know, I, I see it a lot in some of the um, syndromic conditions that we see in, in childhood, the, the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, the Gervais syndromes. I see that those patients typically have more incidence of seizure clusters than most other patients, though I have patients without those syndromes that, that also uh, present with seizure clusters. But there are certain groups that you can predict are high risk mm -hmm. for having seizure clusters. And I want to mention that patients will often recognize that they're going into a cluster. For example, if they have one seizure, they may or may not think that they're going to have a cluster. but based on the timing of the second seizure or the nature of the second seizure, they say, oh, now we're heading into a problem. This is something that needs to activate treatment. So, you know, Pat and Cheryl, both, you've given us tons of information here because that's very important, which is there are these at-risk groups. You've right. mentioned Lennox Castell, you mentioned Dravet, uh, those people with head trauma, longer duration of epilepsy. What's the impact? Uh, I mean, the, the, we know who's at risk, but how does this impact people? 
Well, I, I think certainly it's less life-threatening than status epilepticus, we know that, but the mortality rate is higher in patients that pre present with seizure clusters. Not necessarily that they're going to die in the context of a seizure cluster, but it just puts them at a higher risk. And it also leads to frequent hospitalization, freak, more visits to the emergency room. And um, in, the, in the adult world, particularly, there's a lot of postictal psychosis in these groups. But I think, from my standpoint, what it really comes down to, it, it really interferes in their ability to participate in life. I, I mean, it, it just is. I recently had an experience where I was at, a, at um, uh, what we call a family weekend for families with epilepsy in Florida, and it's a weekend that's filled with a lot of activities, sure. fishing, archery, wood shop, all these kind of things. And one of the boys on the first night went into these seizure clusters, and it kind of, you could see it just prevented him and his family from being able to go on and participate in the activity. So uh, from my point of view, the biggest impact is how it affects your ability to participate. You miss school, you miss work, you miss social activities. It's just devastating for these pa patients and their families. You know, as, as I kind of think about this, I think you've hit on a very important point and I think this highlights kind of some of what we heard from our own uh, patient uh, survey. Uh, let's look at some of the responses from our survey questions. Almost all of our respondents said that recurrent seizures led them to missing work, school, or important function, or have to go to the emergency department. Of course, we want to see that number decrease, and really that's the focus of this program. But I will say, I love what you said in the sense that it impairs life. It doesn't let you participate in life, which I think is the theme. And this is, again, why we're here. Well, let's move on to our discussion of out-of-hospital rescue treatment options for seizure clusters. Unfortunately, we have a large clinical gap in this area. Cheryl, you're going to walk us through different facets of this. Tell us a little bit about what is available fill us in on options that are coming down the pipeline. So we're, I, I like your use of the term rescue medication and that we, we tend to use that for seizure emergencies for this situation. Today we're, we're focusing on seizure clusters and benzodiazepines, which we're all familiar with, really are the mainstay of treatment. They've always been the mainstay of treatment in the hospital, typically in IV form and now for out-of-hospital treatment, uh, they remain the mainstay. And we have quite a number of options within that. Uh, certainly diazepam has been used and is, has an FDA indication, which we'll talk about in a moment. There are other agents that don't have a specific FDA indication for the treatment of seizure clusters or acute repetitive seizures, but yet are frequently used, including lorazepam, midazolam, clonazepam. Uh, these tend to be used, and we'll talk about some emerging delivery mm -hmm. systems, but we also use some of these as oral agents. Okay. Again, it's off-label. We don't have guidance as to dosing uh, or even appropriateness, but yet we do it because it does seem to work. The concern about using oral agents, uh, which I've done in my own practice, uh, is that the, giving someone a, a, a pill to swallow when they're in between seizures in a seizure cluster 
does have some concern, some choking concerns. Often the tone is not yet uh, resolved uh, for swallowing. And so there is the move away from using a pill towards some of the, the newer approaches of delivery. And IV at home is just impractical. It's impractical. It's impractical. What about, um, uh, kind of walk us through if an alternative in terms of out-of-hospital rescue that's not IV or oral that's out there? Right. So what is approved and, and uh, has been available since 1997 is rectal diazepam. And this really, and especially in the, in the pediatric world, this transformed out-of-hospital treatment. Before that, if, if a, a kid or, or an adult was heading into a seizure emergency and potentially uh, specifically seizure clusters, ARS, mm -hmm. a family had to activate EMS and they had to go to the emergency room and it was a whole to-do. Uh, and just having this available at home really was transformative. People could then use it at home, keep the patient comfortable, stop the seizure cluster, and prevent the evening and overnight spent in the hospital or even a hospital admission. Now, as, a, as an adult epileptologist, you know, I treat mainly adult patients. This is not very widely used sure. in the adult world, sure. as you, as you know sure. from your own practice. And, and this is, it's logistics. You know, it's hard to administer to a large patient in particular, someone who's just had a seizure. And also socially, uh, there's, there are some negative attitudes about rectal drugs. A lot of my patients simply say, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Well, also, even though it is good for, for young children, and, 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 and it's an age thing, because after a certain age, children don't want to yep. use it either. And it's also the situation that you're in. In schools, oftentimes, yeah. it's very difficult. Mm. It's difficult to find someone who can administer it in school or who feels comfortable doing it. And there are certain situations. If you're on an airplane, if you're driving in a car, if you're in the supermarket, there are places where it's just not convenient to to give someone a rectal medication. Well, it's having known that these are the limitations, let's kind of think about other roots of therapy. So we're lucky to be in, a, in an age now where there's, there really is movement in this area, and there are three newer routes of delivery that are being investigated, uh, intramuscular, intranasal, and buccal. Tell me about a little bit more about the intramuscular route. Uh, mm -hmm. That seems like, you know, I, I see EpiPens uh, left and right. Sure. That sounds like a, a nice positive option. Tell right. us a little bit about yeah. what's been done there. The seizure EpiPen. Yes, sure, indeed, sure. indeed. Well, so we've got uh, intramuscular diazepam. Uh, some of the other benzos are also being investigated uh, via the intramuscular route. And there are studies that have looked at this both in-house by caregivers as well as uh, en route to a hospital by uh, EMTs. Mm -hmm. So there's really a lot of interest in the sure. intramuscular route. It, it uh, reaches quickly uh, and it seems to have very good efficacy. Uh, in particular, for example, one study from 2013, which was a phase three trial, uh, did uh, evaluate intramuscular diazepam versus placebo and found that it was significantly more effective to uh, increase time to next seizure or next rescue medication well tolerated uh, and had a very good safety profile. Let's kind of shift a little bit and if you shift off of uh, intramuscular, think about intranasal mm -hmm. options. Uh, first of all, uh, can you get the same amount of drug to the person when they need it as other options? 
So as, as with everything in medicine, and we're very familiar with this, everything has pros and cons. Right. So the intramuscular, we see it's very, uh, has good efficiency and, and safety, but it uses a needle, and there's certainly some hesitation on, on patients' parts to, to uh, give treatments with needles. So we think of other options. So then you have intranasal. Uh, again, none of these are, have yet been FDA approved. We're mm -hmm. hoping to have new options available to us. Um, so intranasal avoids the needle issue. It avoids the swallowing issue. So it's, it's a very attractive route. There has been concern, will it reach the bloodstream as, as well? And uh, happily, there have been many bioavailability studies that show that intranasal is a perfectly acceptable route with very good bioavailability compared to the rectal form, uh, IM form, even IV form. Uh, so if you're really looking across the board, these various routes seem to have quite equal efficacy uh, in terms of, of achieving good levels of, of benzodiazepine. Which is always great news. Let's get to specifics in the intranasal uh, realm uh, and talk about um, intranasal diazepam, one of the options that may be emerging. Sure, well, so we're very familiar with diazepam and certainly uh, the rectal diazepam uh, has good efficacy, so there's a lot of optimism about intranasal diazepam. Uh, there have been some studies and a lot of interest in this area. Uh, it's being looked at in doses ranging from five milligrams, uh, which might be split between the two nostrils, uh, up to 20 milligrams. And um, this very good news is that it seems to compare in bioavailability and presumed efficacy mm. to, uh, to rectal diazepam. What about um, uh, the uh, intranasal midazolam, another variation, a different benzo, same approach? Right. So it, we have experience with midazolam more in an inpatient setting where it's frequently used uh, in the IV treatment of status, for example. And again, contrasting pros and cons, we know that diazepam and lorazepam tend to have longer uh, duration of action in, this, in the central nervous system. So there's hope that that will prevent seizure clusters from recurring. At the same time, that can add to uh, sedation being prolonged. Midazolam, on the other hand, has a shorter duration, um, which will hopefully be equally as effective for, for stopping seizure clusters, but may allow patients to wake up a little quicker. This is all under investigation. Uh, but there are certainly studies looking at intranasal midazolam right now for the use of seizure clusters. And again, similar types of dosing, two and a half milligrams up to seven and a half milligrams. So far, the data is very reassuring that uh, the bioavailability is excellent and that the, um, hopefully the efficacy is going to be proven to be as good as, as the other agents. We talked about muscular, nasal. What about squirting it in the cheek or buckle? Another really interesting approach where you, you avoid needles, you avoid swallowing pills. Uh, there are some, there's very good absorption through the buccal mucosa, um, and so it's, it's certainly an option. The caregivers have to be trained well to administer it so that it doesn't come out of the mouth um, and, nor, and, and to prevent a choking risk. But actually, outside of the United States, this is used quite extensively, uh, proved in Europe. Um, we do not have this available uh, to date in the United States. But what we see is that around the world, there is more interest in this, and we're hoping here in the United States to have 
accessible some of these agents soon. Which would be exciting that, that if some of these cross the, the Atlantic uh, sure. to kind of get over here. We're going to shift our focus a little bit and we're going to talk about seizure action plans. I want to first ask our online audience a polling question. You'll see the question pop up in your window and the question is this, with what percentage of your patients do you participate in developing a seizure action plan? A, none, zero. B, one to 25 percent. C, 26 to 50 percent. D, 51 to 75 percent. Or E, 76 to 100 percent. Please vote now and we will discuss your responses shortly. While we do that, uh, Pat, Pat, I know that in your practice at Nicholas Children's Hospital, you frequently help your families to develop seizure action plan for kids who have epilepsy. Okay, so true confessions. Uh, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that I personally can't recall ever having participating in literally developing the seizure action plan. Maybe because I treat adults more than kids. That sounds like an excuse, I know, but. Uh, I never really thought about it so much, and one of the reasons I think I haven't is because we're so pressed for time in the office, and I think that's a barrier. Um, I have a feeling if I did this, I'd probably spare a few phone calls, but can you give us a sense of someone who does this often, how much time do you think I could save myself in phone calls or ER visits for the patients, as it seems like a logical trade-off in developing a seizure action plan? Well, you know, Joe, and don't beat yourself up. Okay, I, I nice. think Thank I think you, um, I think pediatrics <laughs> lends itself to, to the seizure action plan. Pretty much, it was developed for schools because our chil the children go to school, and the schools want a seizure action plan. They ask for it. Oftentimes, schools have nurses who would like a seizure action plan. So I, I think that's how these things got started: is developing them for school. But what you come to see is that they have value in the adult world as well. You know, they, have, they, they certainly have value. You know, we were talking about, like, the classifications, whether they're seizure clusters, whether they're this. There's so much that we find confusing that we can only imagine how the patient or the caregivers are confused. So I think the more we give them kind of something concrete, the easier it is for them to manage their seizures. Now, the problem is it does take time. It, there's no doubt about it. It takes time. You have to sit with the patient. You have to go over their medicines, their seizure types, what they should do. If, if you have two seizures, you sure. know, maybe you can take a PO medicine. If now you have four seizures, maybe you want to start to take you know, in our case, we'd be using rectal diazepam, but in the future, we'll be able to give them another alternative. So I, I think it, it takes time initially, but I think you're right, Joe. I think it would save you time in the long run. It would save you some phone calls, and it might save your patient's ER visits. And the important thing, to, you you shouldn't have to do it yourself, Joe. They're, they're <laughs> most, you know. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think my physicians have ever developed a seizure action plan. I think I do it or another nurse does it. And I think what we have to start realizing and working as a team with the patient and with, with our staff. 
I think so. I, I, other than patients in group homes, I don't remember doing it. I really don't. Well, at least you've come to my rescue in the, in the sense that I, this is an issue. And, and by the way, when we got the results of our poll question, uh, the vast majority of folks actually uh, were not dealing with seizure action plans. In fact, our, uh, a big, like the vast majority, uh, had a very small time where they actually mm. had seizure action plans. So this is kind of, I think we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Yep. And, and, that, and this just tells us this is what we need to change. Yep. Well, when patient participants in our survey were asked what percentage of people have a formal seizure action plan, and this is the one that was developed in collaboration with their healthcare provider, we had a broad range of responses, anywhere from 10%, almost never, to 100%, which is amazing, <laughs> with the highest number primarily among parents of children with epilepsy, that speaks to what Pat was saying, and relatively fewer of any adults having a seizure action plan. I guess this is a good time to hear, and you see some of the responses that we have uh, in our materials here, which I think basically echoes everything we've just been saying. It's kind of nice to hear what one patient had to say about seizure action plan that we pulled. With regards to preparedness, I think that 50% of the people in my community have an action plan. I hear of people heading to the ER with seizures that may have been able to be handled at home if they had a preparedness plan. I also feel people in my community do not understand what actions they could take for cluster seizures. Yeah, you know, it, 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 and there, that's a pretty good community that they have going there. Um, and, and I think, but that's how the word gets spread. Besides us doing it, once our patients get to know right. that there are seizure action plans out there, they'll be bringing them into us. Right. You know, one of the things, Pat, I know you're the expert in the topic, you're an expert in this room, and you've probably developed hundreds of these plans. Let's kind of have you teach us, if you will, uh, about these. And, and let's start off by just an overview of the primary components of a seizure action plan, and then we'll work into how do you go about putting it together. Well, you know, um, the primary components of a seizure action plan, it, it, it's just what you do in case of a seizure. That is, that is the, the goal of a seizure action plan. And, and so the, the plans, and you can get them online. Nobody has to reinvent the wheel here. Um, my favorite one is epilepsy.com. And um, that's the one that I use most of the time. And you could just download this uh, plan and sit with your patient and do it. It first of all it gives patient demographics, obviously their name, their age, things like that. And then it talks about their seizure types, whether they have one seizure type or more than one. And then the medications they're on and the dosage of the medications. The medications they had been on in the past that failed and why they, why they were stopped. And then what to do in case of a seizure. How much, you know, like if you have two seizures, you know, you maybe can take a, a rescue pill by mouth, and then if the seizures increase in frequency, then what, what else is it that you do? And it also on the plan includes the names of their doctors, their primary care doctors, their neurologists, whether they have any other conditions that they go to a specialist for, and the name of persons that can be contacted in case they have a seizure and they're not within their, with their family. Pat, let me rip off one of the words you use, and that was team. 
And so clearly you heard us say the impediment is time for physicians, uh, the, the fact that we all struggle with this. Who are the team members, if you will, in creating that seizure action plan? Well, you know, within the context of of a clinic or an office, there you know there are doctors, there are nurses, there are nurse practitioners, and and so those are the kind of the group that would create the the action plan. But in some places, you know, they don't have all that staff, and sometimes your medical assistants are just as knowledgeable if they've been with you for a long time in epilepsy and seizures, and they can help do it. Also. Um, in a lot of communities, there are epilepsy foundation offices, and the people who work there would also be more than willing to come in and help you develop seizure action plans for your patients. And um, for children, the school nurses are willing to help. And, you know, once you start getting outside, you know, um, sometimes people that you work with for the adults, people that work with you would be willing to help and, and, and in some cases employers would be willing to help. So I think we kind of have, and, and it's a little hard in epilepsy because there's such stigma associated with seizures that oftentimes people are afraid to tell their coworkers and their employers about their seizures and they don't want to seem that they're incompetent and can't do their job. So oftentimes I think they're afraid to talk about it. But I think that if someone is going to have seizures within the context of their workplace, they have to develop some kind of comfort to discuss this with the people around them. And well, they need to be aware, sorry, that, yeah, that the Americans with Disabilities Act protects epilepsy and covers epilepsy and many, many employers are subject to that. You know, this it gets us back to the point. The patient has to be the center and it has to be somewhat tailored to them. And so we addressed that question. In fact, our final question we posted in our survey was how confident people are that their seizure action plan that they've developed can be readily implemented. Yeah. On average, only 59% of those who had a seizure action plan were confident that it could be readily implemented. If you extrapolate that number to the percentage of people with epilepsy who said that they have a seizure action plan, we're only talking about a yeah. quarter of patients with epilepsy having a plan and being comfortable with implementing it. We, I could say all I want, I think sometimes uh, some of our uh, uh, folks that helped us out uh, give us the better picture. So let's hear what one of our patients had to say about the impediments implementation. I think people just get nervous in that minute when their loved one, they are the executor of that action plan. I think the person who's watching them go through the seizures kind of second guessing. I've seen some cases where people just aren't sure is this enough of a seizure to warrant the action plan. And so I think there is still a little bit of education that needs to occur around the action plan and around the people who are involved with you with your action plan comments on Yeah, I, I mean, I think sometimes we, we forget how frightened people get when they see their loved one to have a seizure. Yeah. Right. So it, 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 it is, it's just that constant reassuring them that they can do it and, and the constant, and, and being very clear, you know, like if it lasts one minute, you know, like kind of really giving them really clear instructions on what to do. I think this is, we make the assumption that we say something and people 
get it and they understand right. what they what we say and they're going to keep it you know it's such a wisdom that they're going to keep it in their mind forever but it doesn't work like that so i think we just have to be very clear and 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 constantly you know reassuring them and going over it again and again and having a written document to use in an emergency yes. situation takes the element of unpredictability out of it. They have something to look up. Absolutely. That's yeah. such a big topic because yeah. I know people, I, I need to have something in my hand Absolutely. no matter what to kind of uh, get me through with regards to anything important there. Well, one of the ways that we can improve our patient's comp uh, confidence in implementing the seizure action plan is how we develop it. Mm. Uh, using the theory of shared decision making, it not only ensures that we're incorporating patient preferences, but also their abilities. If we hand a seizure action plan to a patient that's so complicated that he or she can't possibly carry out the steps involved, we've done them a, a disservice. I mean, it's almost useless. Cheryl, start us off on a discussion with what we mean by the term shared decision making. You know, Joe, I think this is something we all aspire to and actually believe that we do naturally in our communication with patients, but really probably often don't, and that's why it's so good to operationalize this. Uh, if we think the definition of shared decision-making is a collaborative process that allows patients and their providers to make healthcare decisions together, taking into account the best scientific evidence that's available and the patient's values and perspectives. Again. It's like the side effect issue. If the patient has different beliefs or values than what I'm saying, then, then they're not going to take home the message that I'm trying to deliver. So uh, this is really, I think, the movement in medicine towards more shared partnership with patients to get the best outcomes. You know, if, um, if, if, if you break your leg and you go to an orthopedic surgeon, you're not going to tell him how to set your leg, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's kind of not a, it's like a one-time deal. But with epilepsy, like you, you and you know more about epilepsy than your patients, but your patients know more about their epilepsy That's than true. anybody. That's true. Well, you know, there are resources, and by the way, as a point of reference, every resource we reference here will have available to you all, the audience, in links. But one of the resources we reference here is from the American Academy of Neurology, and they've developed shared decision-making materials. A mm -hmm. uh, great resource is a video presentation by Dr. Adam Webb on the use of shared decision-making, and it's available for view and download uh, from that site, and we've provided a link on our website. Cheryl, talk about what else the AAN and other organizations for that matter may have available and what we can do to use shared decision making in the management of seizure clusters. So there's the, aside from the video that you mentioned, there, there is similarly on the AAN a, a shared decision making tool that's a brochure type that uh, helps guide you towards taking this step with patients. Uh, honestly, I think there needs to be more. I think this is su such an important and emerging area that other organizations, especially those committed to epilepsy, will move in this direction as well. And we really, as a, as a group, have to recognize how critical this is, how much the patients want it, and the fact we're really not delivering this approach uh, frequently enough. Very, very true. Uh, 
Pat, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the, the true honors here. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to have you tie this all together for us. Walk us through sitting down with a patient or family, determining their preferences, the risk tolerance, and putting together this seizure action plan. Well, the most important thing is for us to listen to them. Because it's like Cheryl said, like you said, if they if they don't buy into this, it's it's useless. It's useless. But we need to listen to what they're saying. We need to understand their education level. You know what, so we could give them an individualized care plan, an individualized seizure care plan. Um, we have to really be clear about the treatments. We have to really explain to them these are the risks, these are the benefits. Um, and you have to understand what frightens them. We have to understand right. what scares them. Right. And, and, and the, what the biggest imp impediment is the time. You know, they, somehow we have to be able to cut out the time to sit and go over it with them. But like I said to you before, Jill, this could save you time in the long run. It could save us time. If they have a clear plan, this is it. I do this, I do this. They don't have to call you and say, I had a seizure, Dr. Servin, what should I do? Right. They know what to do. And so in, in the end, if we help them, it helps us. Great, great, important points. I, I want to kind of uh, remind everyone that this program does not stop our, our discussion or conversation on this topic. We're actually creating a resource for clinicians as well that we hope will be a valuable resource for you and your patients. We're creating a short video for patients, families, and providers about components of a seizure action plan, how to develop one, how to implement the plan uh, in your management. We ask you to visit our website, review the video, it'll be out in a few weeks, and hopefully prescribe this learning tool to your patients and families. Please visit neurosciencecme.com in the next few weeks to utilize this video. I know before I kind of get into our closing remark, I know that there are many, many questions that are pouring in at this time, as I'm being told, and uh, we will get to those uh, sh very shortly. But I do want to ask one final question of basically our audience first. Uh, in which of these four areas that I'm about to lay out are you most in need of education when it comes to epilepsy? Is it a, identifying types of seizures, B, engaging patients in shared decision-making, C, working with my patients to develop seizure action plans, or D, treatments for epilepsy. I'd ask you all to click that in, because that'll help us guide future programming uh, as we develop it. But that's the question to the audience. I'm gonna turn to uh, my colleagues here and uh, I'm going to ask them for a few clinical connections or, or key take-home messages that we want our clinicians to kind of make sure they walk away from this that may help to change their practice and kind of really help our patients. So Cheryl, I'm going to start with you. So here, listening to, to both of you this discussion, but even more so listening to those patient clips has been really eye-opening right. for me. I have to say, uh, I think the, the gap between what the patients want, expect appropriately, and are getting is very wide, and uh, we need to deliver better. I need to listen better, understand better, and, and work in partnership with them. 
both from the early education and discussion about seizure types and uh, implications of the definition of epilepsy and the diagnosis, all the way to really, as, as we've been saying, the development of a seizure action plan that we do not do enough of in, in adult epilepsy for sure. And I was very impressed with one of, the, one of the patient points, you know, taking this on is a very big responsibility to be giving these rescue medications, for example, at home rather than automatically call for medical help. And it's confusing, it can be scary, and the more we have prepared these patients and discussed it as a team and educated them, the better it's going to be for them and, of course, for the patients. So I'm committed to, even if it's going to take booking a little bit longer of a patient uh, visit once per patient to sit down and seriously as a team develop this this action plan I think it's critical I'm with you a hundred percent agreement Pat what key points do you want to make sure that you leave with the audience today well that it always has to be about the patient it always has to be about the patient and their family it's not what we think they should do it's what they think they should do it's what they are capable of doing and it, it we we can't assume that they know that they know it we can't assume we have to listen to them and understand what's important to them and we have to understand you know that they need something written just because we say it that doesn't mean they're going to remember it and the more the more concrete uh, things we give them the more the more we explain it, the more we give it to them, the better chance they have of doing it. Pat, I can't add for better advice there. Uh, I'm going to, to our audience, I want to encourage you to please visit www.neurosciencecme.com and www.cmeoutfitters.com for a comprehensive list of CME activities, clinical resources, outcomes research, news, and so much more. I also want to thank you, my colleagues, for joining me today. I couldn't do this alone, obviously. And uh, Pat and Cheryl, it is such a pleasure to have you here for a very practical and hopefully impactful discussion. Uh, and I thank you, our audience, for joining us today. We sincerely hope that we were able to integrate the voice of the patient into our discussion of the recognition of seizures and seizure clusters as well as our review of available and emerging treatment of seizure clusters. I hope you have a better understanding of the importance of seizure action plans, I know I do, and how to use shared decision making to enhance your patient's confidence in implementing these plans. Please stay with us for our after the show program uh, where we'll answer questions and that'll start in about two minutes. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'm Dr. Joe Servan thanking you for joining us today. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, Ms. Patricia Dean, Dr. Cheryl Howe, and I'm going to jump right to answer your questions. We've received a number of email questions here. You can call, email, or fax us with your questions or, call, or comments by calling 1-800-322-3487. 1-800-322-3487. Three four eight seven, or faxing your questions to 614-448-4476, 614-448-4476, or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. 
We'll also be monitoring the Twitter feed at hashtag SeizureActionPlan so you can tweet your questions as well. We'll be answering your questions in about two minutes. Listen, I want to I want to thank you for for all your questions. Okay, uh, I want to thank for your questions. I'm going to start off uh, right now, and I'm going to turn to Pat, and we'll keep going back around Robin. Pat, do you use seizure diaries in your practice, and are they useful? Yes. I do, and, and I think they are useful, especially when we're in this whole concept of seizure clusters, because one thing about seizure clusters is that they're different than your normal seizure activity. Say a patient has one seizure every two weeks, and all of a sudden they have three seizures a day. I mean, that, that makes a difference, and again, sometimes it, when you're going about your day and doing things, you don't realize the change until you see it in writing. And also, so seizure diaries don't only help in the treatment of seizure clusters, but they help in medication adjustments and, and things like that. I've got to break in because it's, it's, it's a topic that's very, very <laughs> near and dear to my heart. I, I've done a fair amount of research utilizing seizure diaries. I really believe in it, and I feel... For patients with epilepsy, one of the biggest burdens is unpredictability of seizures. They don't know when it's going to happen. Seizures, seizure clusters, etc. And what I find when I have patients keep long-term seizure diaries, I ask them not only to write down their seizures, but also potentially provocative um, features such as if they slept very poorly. For women, I ask them to write down their, their menstrual days, um, if they're under particular stress. And sometimes you can see patterns start to emerge that can be helpful to alert your patients to potential at-risk seizure times and maybe they can take extra measures on those days. Which is all kind of so, so very true when it comes to those diaries. Um, Cheryl, this is a one that speaks to both of what we confess to. The reality in my practice is I'm pushed to see more patients but yet feel the pressure to spend more time with patients uh, developing plans and addressing quality issues. Any tips or tools that you'd suggest to, to address the dichotomy? This, as we say, it's a big struggle. And what I have done, and honestly, I've never done it for this. I've done it, for example, if I want to discuss a, a surgical workup with a patient, is occasionally I will book specifically a longer um, office visit to discuss some serious or complex topics. And you don't have to do it often, but I think taking that extra 10 minutes into the office visit where you don't feel rushed helps clarify so much more so that subsequent visits can be shorter. And I'm, I'm feeling that doing this for a seizure action plan is gonna be the same thing. Won't, you know, investing that extra time occasionally may prevent uh, longer visits and a lot of phone calls, et cetera. But at the same time, I don't know where the time comes from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. It, it does take time. And, and again, that's why we, we talked about if there's somebody in your office who can help you with this or, or in your community, like, someone, like um, someone from the Epilepsy Foundation in your area that can help you uh, formulate these seizure action plans. And the other thing I can say is like it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more efficient you get at it, and it kind of it doesn't take no time, but it takes less time if you kind of develop a kind of 
pattern yeah. into doing it. This morning we were talking about uh, tips, and and some people are piloting the concept of scribes, but mm. that's a that's a whole budgetary piece to it. But that's another way around uh, this particular issue, depending on how you structure. Um, one's practice in that uh, regard. One, one thought I'm having is maybe download the forms, have the patients take it home, work on it as a group with uh, some preliminary ideas describing this, the seizure emergencies, etc., and then they bring it back to the next visit and you start to review it together. That could save some time also. Pat, I got two questions uh, that pertain to the same topic, and uh, this is a big one, uh, and uh, and one that I knew would come up, and that has to do with driving. Mm -hmm. Driving in the world of stable epilepsy, driving in the terms of safety management, driving period, uh, and how it's incorporated in this concept of, uh, of a seizure clusters, seizure action plans. Well. Driving with epilepsy is the ongoing problem, but you know, um, it, it doesn't. If you're having seizure clusters, you can't drive. Right. You can't drive, right. and um, you know, there's, you know, the only thing we can advise our patient is to the laws of driving because they're different mm -hmm. in every state, and that's why keeping seizure diaries is a good thing. So you you can track, you know, you know, oh, it's six months, now I can apply for driving privileges. But I don't know the answer to that, Joe. I mean, there's no way of getting around driving. If you're having seizures, you can't drive. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not even our decision, it's the law. And that varies, as you said, state by state. There are resources that you can look that up per state. Some states force uh, physicians and practitioners to report. Others are a little lenient, but the fact is all of them have a law. I have a poster from the Epilepsy Foundation mm -hmm. that has the entire country state by state, and I have it hanging in the exam room. And why I feel it's important, aside from being an educational tool, is that the patient has to be to know it's not me who's, pre who's preventing right. them from driving. This is a law. We're going to refer to this and review it, but it, it's not, it doesn't come between me and the patient as much because it's not my decision. We're going to kind of shift a uh, little focus here, and uh, Cheryl, this uh, kind of uh, kind of goes to one of the comments that you made uh, when you're talking about classification and 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 knowing why it's important for treatment. The question is, it's very specific. Why do sodium channel agents exacerbate generalized seizures? Is that just a known? I don't know that it's known, and it's not uniform. You know, we'll all find a patient who comes in on carbamazepine and I go through the, the chart and they turn out to have you know childhood absence epilepsy and there's no there's no doubting the diagnosis and yet they're doing terrifically well and if you try to change their medicine they do poorly so it, it's certainly not a contraindication uh, but but clearly there are many many reports and observations that some of these exacerbate uh, generalized seizures I don't know if you know mechanistically exactly why it is I don't I just know that's always been one of those areas that we know that certain medications such as carbamazepine in the setting of generalized seizures may actually exacerbate it sure. and, right. and that's uh, but why that specific medication and in that particular epilepsy is unclear uh, Pat one of the uh, comments, and I'll turn it into a question, but maybe it's more for you to comment on, is that 
we really need to share this with the emergency room physician yeah. and their community. Too often our patients are, are seen there and the treatment and approach is anywhere and everywhere. Comments and thoughts? Well, for some patients, I actually write, like, when you go to the emergency room, tell them this, you know, and, and this. And, um, you know, it's particularly there are some things in pediatrics, like some of our kids were on that fer uh, the, the specialized ketogenic diet, and so the emergency rooms really know if they go in for even things that aren't seizure-related that they can't take certain medications. Uh, particularly liquid medications that have sugars so that that you have to give that group of patients and oftentimes I do give patients with frequent seizures something that they can give to their emergency room and the thing there is that some emergency physicians are very happy to receive it and some are resistant but I, I think it's I think it's a good idea to include something in a seizure action plan if you go to the emergency room and I'm going to piggyback because I think a point that, that needs to be brought out very clearly is these seizure action plans aren't only for how to keep a patient at home, but also when do you need to activate emergency services, when have you given enough benzodiazepine at home that right. you have to start to worry about respiratory risk because obviously that's one of the main concerns with, with uh, using benzodiazepines is respiratory depression. So both how to decide when it's safe for them to be at home versus activate the emergency. Right, well you also, when, you, when you're doing the emergency, the seizure action plan, you say you take this, you take this, and, and when you call 911 right. is included. I, I didn't mention yeah. that, I'm sorry, but that is included sure. in, the, in the action plan. And oftentimes I tell them as soon as you feel uncomfortable with the situation, yeah. you call 911. Right. One of the, uh, I think this is a, another kind of uh, very important question. It also has to do with what do you tell patients about the regularly scheduled medications, rules about extra doses, <laughs> misdoses, comments or on, on that one? Well, we kind of talked about that at dinner last the night. About we did. It. Yeah. I asked yeah. you both if you, if a patient is having a group of, uh, you know, a number of seizures, do you give them an extra dose of medication? And I don't think um, there's any right or wrong answer to that. Um, I mean, sometimes in, in our practice, there are some physicians who I see do that, and then I see others who never do that. So I, I am not sure. I think the jury is still out of whether that's a, a good rule to, to go by. I think the only time I have a rule is if they miss meds about remembering to take it the moment they remember it. Agreed. And that one I have, I think, a clearer sense of, yeah. of the picture, but I don't often have a rule, take an extra X if you have a breakthrough. Yeah, you, you might be helping, you may push them into toxicity. Um, one issue I have with the medication adherence that you mentioned, forgetting medicines, I feel that cell phones, everybody has now, at all times in their pocket, something to remind them to take their medicine. And I urge patients to pick a specific alarm tone and link that with an alarm that goes yeah. off when they should yeah. be taking their medicines. So it's not only that they hear an alarm, but they hear that specific, oh, that's my medication, cell phone, tone. Uh, and uh, my patients report that that helps, definitely helps adherence. Uh, so you have less of this misdose issue. 
which is uh, which which is uh, again one of those things that the jury will be out in terms of how we figure this out. But those are our practices at least right. for now. Right. Cheryl, uh, this is a uh, one that we ask ourselves uh, often. Two parts. Do you have a sense when these new treatments might be available? And then the second part of this, and you kind of reference this, what are the side effects we're going to have to worry about? So the new treatments are available uh, three years ago, based on <laughs> talks that I gave uh, four years ago. Uh, we, honestly, we were waiting. You know, we we were optimistic. There have been uh, various delays, it seems, and also it, it takes a long time to do these studies and do them well. Uh, but we remain very optimistic that we'll have some new agents available, hopefully soon. Uh, and the other question about about side effects. I mentioned some of the um, side effects that are specific to the the individual types of the you know using a needle for intramuscular uh, so there's obviously some some pain or irritation as a potential side effect. Um, with the intranasal there's uh, nasal irritation that can be a problem uh, but overall the overriding concern about benzodiazepines is respiratory depression um, and obviously at high doses, uh, blood pressure, maintenance, et cetera. But really, we worry about respiratory depression, especially in the setting of repeated seizures. So that's where I think the most education has to be delivered to the caregivers. When is it safe to use it, and when do you have to recognize that this is approaching a situation of having to activate the EMS? The, the other problem you get in with repetitive use of benzos is that people develop a tolerance. You know, so, uh, I, I mean, that that's always, you know, yeah. a problem, too, you know, because sometimes the same dose that stopped your seizure, you know, six months ago, if you're using it routinely, right, doesn't, stops working, so. Right, I think that's very important. The more rescue you're using, the more we have to consider changing the preventive treatments right. because this just isn't working. Um, one of the other parts that was brought up in a seizure action plan has to do with just medication adherence or compliance. Um, do you have specific tips or best practices you'd like to share that you suggest for helping your patients stay true to what's been prescribed, adherence and, and compliance issues, uh, because uh, the individual struggles this, with this with their patients? Well, in, in, in the pediatric world, you're, you're, we're, we're lucky, too, is that the mothers are in charge. And the, and the mothers typically, you know, will give the right dose of meds at the exact same time, you know. And then my problem get, becomes when, as they become adolescent and become more responsible for taking their own meds. And I, I'm not sure what exactly works. I, I try, like, the, the less amount of times someone has to take their meds, the, the more likely they are to remember to take them, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, okay. particularly like if you could just give them in the morning and at night and not have any, well, we're fortunate now that a lot of our drugs have long half-lives, so we don't have to give three times a day dosing. But just kind of make them kind of as easy as possible. I, you know, I have some parents who'll wake up at like two in the morning to give a med and, and I just think the more you make it that it fits into your 
life schedule, the right. more likely you are to adhere to it. Like I only take medication, I take it once a day for a, not a non-epilepsy issue, but I take it in the morning when I brush my sure, teeth because sure. that's the time I'm going to remember, you know, and you know, I tried to tell like my adolescents to take it when you brush it, put it right next to your toothbrush. Of course, especially boys, they don't always brush right. their teeth. But, <laughs> but if you're going to brush, most people brush their teeth in the morning, so you'll remember. So it's something that helps you remember. And it's like you said, those alarms now, and every adolescent carries a cell phone. So setting off those alarms is another way to help compliance. But making it as simple as possible. Like not making them take three different doses. Like, right. like right. I, I really, I really hate when I get patients that are on one dose at this time and one dose at that time and a different dose the next day. I just think the simpler we make it for people, the better it is. And particularly with adults with epilepsy who have some degree of cognitive impairment, you have to make it easy. Oh, and that reminds me, the memory issues, of course, are, are very prevalent uh, in epilepsy. Sure. So. Ha patients need to remember that they took their dose and I recommend to everybody to buy a pill box fill it up once a week so that there's no confusion about whether you've already taken the dose or not because you get those phone calls I don't remember if I took all of my medicines this morning should I take them again sure and it's these are these difficult questions and it's reality Cheryl this is a question that goes back to one of the problems we've alluded to, which is the shifting sands of terminology. Uh, and, and this is, I, I think, a pretty decent uh, sentiment because there's actually three questions on this yes, thing, yes. which is, and, the, and, and so I'll let you address which part of this. We've talked about defining seizure cluster from a defini definition perspective for clinicians and FDA. How do you define it for an individual patient? And then the second part of this, which is there's so much confusion about the old and new terms for epilepsy and seizures right. overall, which one do you use? So it's, I think that there's, we should recognize there's two different needs. There's an epidemiological need that drives research and you need to have very specific definitions. How are you defining epilepsy? How are you defining your seizure cluster versus seizure flurry versus, you know, crescendo seizure, etc. And for that, you really need uniformity. What I think is so important for the clinician and the patient is not so much what term are we using, but what is the implication? What are the treatment issues? What are the prognostic or natural history issues? So when it comes to even the definition of epilepsy, if I have a patient, a 14-year-old who's had uh, first convulsion and we do an EEG and there's generalized spike wave, I now understand something about what syndrome they may have or what direction they may be going and I can now make a decision to treat without waiting for subsequent seizures. So we've now defined epilepsy in some sense based on treatment. So I think it's ultimately the most important in terms of treatment. Same for seizure clusters. Does the patient have an entity that requires a rescue medication and a treatment plan. And if so, whether we call it a cluster or a flurry, whatever works best, it's really what does that mean for the patient and for you as the prescriber and the educator? Pat, I'm uh, one of, and that, that's very kind of, and, and, that, and I have a feeling we're going to be talking about those issues for a sure, while. Sure, sure. Uh, 
Pat, one of the issues that came up within the seizure action plan are uh, in two uh, large uh, categories, uh, but they fall under that preparation, which is they want to avoid inducing seizures, things you can do to avoid it. What do you tell patients about colds or infectious diseases and what meds to avoid, and what do you tell people about sleep? Well, um, I tell them don't get a cold. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We want to be realistic here, realistic. right? <laughs> well, um, first of all, sleep. Is, I'll take sleep is the easiest. You know, like they, you, you know, you know, everybody needs good sleep. I mean, it's not only people with epilepsy. What we learn more and more as life goes on. If you want to lose weight, they say sleep more. I mean, everything. Now we realize the benefits of like a. A good eight hours of sleep and and I tell and like I said again in pediatrics it's you know they're made to go to bed but like when kids are growing up I, I say to them you know you need more sleep than your friends you know it's it's a sure. it's a fact of life um, and so if you want to avoid having seizures especially there are certain as we know certain epileptic syndromes that are more sensitive to sleep deprivation than others so you just kind of and, and the only thing we could do is suggest people get more sleep because things happen in life where people aren't able to sleep. You know, they, they don't get the sleep they need. And as far as like, um, you know, w when you get sick at your, you know, if you are, if you know your seizure pattern or your child's seizure pattern and you're more likely, like especially in, in certain conditions like Dravet, I know when they are sick, they're more likely to have cluster seizures. That the that they're just aware of it and and aware of like not performing certain um, activities around that. But you know, obviously, you can't. You know, it, you're going to get sick. Children are going to get sick. Adults are going to get sick. But just be aware that when you get sick, your seizures might increase. Very, which is a good point. I'm, as we get into our kind of uh, moments here uh, before we're we're done, I wanted to make sure I get this question in. Um, and Cheryl, can you comment about non-benzo treatments that may be in development for this? And as a side corollary, is cannabis one of them? Oh, uh, great. <laughs> Took us almost till the end until right. that came up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, there are some other approaches to um, aborting a, a cluster. Um, I'll mention the patients who have the vagal nerve stimulator implanted have a magnet and the caregivers have a magnet that can be used. It's never been proven in a clinical trial, but there's a lot of anecdotal support that using the magnet, you know, they swipe it uh, after a single seizure can terminate a cluster um, or reduce its intensity. So I think the magnet is, is an option. Uh, we brought up briefly before taking an extra dose of your regular preventive medication and that's again that's a that's a big decision because it could push you into toxicity that's something that for some patients it may be effective it really is a very individual decision we don't know enough about cannabidiol uh, which is what's been currently uh, studied the most uh, and it's currently in clinical trials for Lanaskesto and Dravet syndrome uh, right now, it is being studied as a preventive medication, so something that you would be taking every day and not uh, as rescue. We are waiting for the data. I think there's nothing right now to support its use uh, as, as a rescue medication, but who knows what will come out from these various studies. 
Pat, um, I got three questions that all relate to this topic, which is, what do you share with the primary care pediatrician or physician? Too often, either they don't manage them right, they don't diagnose it right. What, how do you get them in this process? Oh, well, I mean, <coughs> if, I don't know, that's a hard question. Well, that's a very, very hard, hard question. question. You know, um, I, I think most primary care physicians also would love seizure action plans. You know, they, yeah, I mean, I what we try to do is send them everything that we tell the patients. And um, like I said, primary care physicians who are treating patients for epilepsy, that we are, then I, then I don't know, I can't address it. All I can tell you is that the primary care physicians, the, the pediatricians that we deal with, we, t we send them the information. Sure. And, you know, that, which, they're and, usually and, happy to get but it. But I agree, if we could share it, that would be the, the best set. One minute uh, left here. Um, quick question, do you ever include non-epileptic events in the seizure, a seizure oh, action plan? That's a great question. Well, given that I don't make enough seizure action plans to begin with, uh, I, I can't say I've ever included it. Uh, obviously, that's, that's a big concern. Sometimes non-epileptic seizures do need to be treated with benzodiazepines, right. so that's something we're going to have to think really carefully about. What do you think? I, I think that's one of those areas that uh, it, it's such, uh, if you're going to include the, uh, the epileptic ones, I think you have to include yeah. these, and there's no other way right. around that. Right. I want to thank everyone for their questions, but I want to first uh, remind folks to kind of uh, tune in for another program December 9th with Dr. Michael Radke, looking, I believe, in the world of MS uh, in, uh, and management issues there, so please join us here. I, I hope first of all, that we were able to incorporate the large strategies to answer your questions. We certainly had way more questions that we were able to get to, but we hope that we've kind of given you the sense of how we can incorporate these strategies we've discussed into improved care for your patients with epilepsy who experience seizure clusters. I really want to once again thank Pat and Cheryl for joining me, and to all of you all, for being such a wonderful uh, audience. I, I know that you've all hung around with us for the questions. Uh, uh, please stick with us and check out that video once it's out because I think we'll hope to address many of the issues that arose or maybe even some of the unanswered questions uh, that arose as well. I really appreciate your attention.